Well, welcome to our official podcast for the Miami Hurricanes as we go behind the U. And who better to go behind the U with than this man, Jimmy Johnson, a name, a person, a coach that needs no introduction. Jimmy, first and foremost, thanks for taking the time and thanks for taking us behind the U. Joshua, it's, it's good for me to be here. You know how much I love the U. I mean, it, I do. I, I said for many years, I said, you know, really the best five years of my entire life and my career uh, was at the University of Miami. You know, but of course, when you only lose one regular season game in four years, I mean, that's a fun time. And uh, the only thing I've adjusted, the best time of my life is right now. <laughs> I'm not going to give you an, I'm not, I'm not going to let you warm up here. I'm going to come at you with something hot and heavy right out of the gate. Okay. Okay. This is what everyone wants to know. The 86 team, was it better than the 87 team? The 86 team uh, was more talented uh, than the 87 team. Uh, but, you know, kind of like what Bill Parcells always said, you know, you are what your record, you know, yep. says. and the 87 team was undefeated. And so that was the better team. Understood. Now, how about this? How about this one? The 86 team, the best team in college football to not win a championship. Well, I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, you know, that, that was such a strange, strange year. Um, you know, we were able to go and, and beat up on everybody. And, but we made a, a couple of mistakes. Yeah. Uh, number one, uh, we had a decision to make. We could play Penn State. Uh, in Ar Orlando, or we could go to the Fiesta Bowl. And uh, we'd have been a lot better if we'd have gone to Orlando because <laughs> we'd have had all our fans there. And right. uh, we'd have had a home crowd advantage. Uh, the other thing is, you know, uh, I'm, it was probably the worst job of coaching that I ever did. Um, you know, Vinny had missed the last couple of games. He had been injured, plus he was traveling around. And, you know, with uh, accepting awards, the Walter Camp, the Heisman, et cetera, et cetera. It wasn't quite as prepared, you know, for that ball game as what, you know, we would have liked. And, uh, you know, we, we were just so overconfident that we were just going to blow them away. Uh, we, we ended up throwing the ball more than we should have. And we should have run the football. I mean, they, you know, they made – they had eight first downs in the entire ball game. And, uh, yeah, we dominated 400 and something yards to 100 and something, you know, all that. But statistics don't matter. You know, it's who has the, the most at the end of the ball game. Most devastating loss I ever had in my career, college or pro. Uh, but it was a poor job on my part of coaching. So if you could have changed one thing in that game tactically, what would you have changed? Well, I'd have to change two things. You know, okay. number one, I probably would have put the backup quarterback in. Uh, number two, I would have run the ball, you know, with Alonzo Highsmith a lot more than what I did. We made up for it the next year, though. Well, I was going to say, I was going to say, <laughs> let's transition to the positive. So <laughs> if the mission was to win it all that year, then what was the mission the offseason after 86 going into 87? And how did you sort of manage the team, your coaches, just keeping them mentally prepared to take on another another season to accomplish the goal? I, I actually think that loss made me a better coach. Um, uh, it kept me from ever getting overconfident again. Uh, even in, when we were, you know, highly favored in ball games, you know, I, I was you know, a stickler as far as attention to detail. Um, 
I didn't want to leave any stone unturned. And so we were, we were always thoroughly prepared, even if we were a favorite by three touchdowns. So it made me a better coach, not only in college, but in professional football. Um, and so the next year we go out and, you know, as disappointing as that year was, I mean, how can it be disappointing? We set a record for the number of wins and we lost one game by what, four points or so. Right. And, uh, but it was disappointing and uh, we weren't going to let it happen again. And so even though the next year's team wasn't quite as talented, um, we went out and of course won every ball game, won the national championship. And had we had instant replay, would have won the national championship and had another undefeated team the next year. You know, it's funny. I was going to ask you that very question. If there was instant replay in 88, that call gets overturned, correct? Oh, without question. I mean, if, if we had instant replay, Lou Holtz wouldn't have a national championship <laughs> and the university of Miami would have another one. Another uh, one. Yeah. It, it was, uh, yeah, it, it was no question, you know, that, you know, when you see it, you know, on, on film, one of two things, either his knee was down or it was a touchdown. And uh, it was not a fumble. That was the last thing. Uh, so, but if we had instant replay, we'd have won another national championship. So going back to that 87 year, I mean, after the Florida state game, Walsh to Irvin, you basically destroyed everyone that whole, down, that whole run down the stretch. When did you kind of know it was right with that team? Well, yeah, you know, I, I, I felt good about that team all along. Um, you know, uh, Steve Walsh uh, was not the most talented quarterback that we had, but he was protective of the football. And, and he was able to utilize the supporting cast. Uh, you, know, you know, we were just so good defensively and, and we could run the football and we could take advantage of opponents. Uh, you know, we really had a dominant football team throughout that year. Coach, there's so many different things we could talk about. You just mentioned the defense. I want to get into this with you. Your defensive philosophy when you came to Miami, right? That kind of attacking upfield, 4-3, take linebackers, make them defensive linemen, safeties, make them linebackers. Where did that originate? Did that originate prior to Miami? Or once you got to Miami and sort of saw what you had to work with, you sort of adjusted evaluation, personnel, scheme, et cetera? Yeah, I came up with this scheme of defense when I was at University of Pittsburgh. Um, and we, we had, uh, uh, back to my, actually my playing days, uh, I played for, in high school, uh, for a coach by the name of Buckshot Underwood. What a name. Buckshot. <laughs> and, uh, hey, he coached like Buckshot, too. I mean, I he was a hard grinding, you know, you wouldn't let us have a drink of water in that hot sun down in Port Arthur, Texas. And, and uh, he toughened us up. Uh, but we ran a, a, what they call a 27 defense. Uh, it was a 4-3, but it was a, a little bit different. And he had learned it from Bear Bryant because Buckshot had coached for Bear Bryant at the uh, University of Kentucky. And uh, so we ran this in, at Port Arthur, Texas. Well, you know, I, when I became defensive coordinator at University of Pittsburgh, uh, I started running it there and I made some adjustments, but we had, you know, players like Hugh Green and Ricky Jackson, you know, we had some great players. And so when I went, became head coach at Oklahoma state, I started running that same scheme and it gave everybody problems. Uh, and so you, I just brought it with me from Oklahoma state to university of Miami. Now my first year, 
you know, I didn't get the job at University of Miami until I think June. And then a week after I got the job, all these assistant coaches that I'd never met in my life, they all went on vacation for a month. <laughs> and, and so I didn't see them again. True story. I didn't see them again until we started training camp. Well, I couldn't install that style of defense. So since I'd inherited the staff prior you know, to me coming there, I just let them, I said, okay, you run your defensive scheme and I'll adjust. Uh, and, you know, we, we started out strong. Of course, we beat Auburn and Bo Jackson and we beat Florida. Uh, but toward the end of the year, we really struggled. And at the end of the year, I brought in a few of my coaches and we kind of made them mesh and we put in my defensive scheme my second year. And from that time on, uh, it was uh, success all the way. So let's talk about how you got hired, because it is a unique set of circumstances, right? It is rare to get hired in June. <laughs> right. You know, I, one of the things I was going to ask you was you probably didn't see your team in pads until fall camp, right? Usually you get spring ball, summer, then you get fall camp. Did you have any idea what your team was like? I had no clue. And, and the reason it was so late, Howard Snellenberger had taken the job with the new football league. And, and actually, Sam Jankovic had talked to me at the uh, coaching convention. He said, you know, hey, you know, how about John Cooper? Okay, you mentioned a couple of names for coaching at University of Miami. I said, well, how about me? <laughs> he said, well, I talked to Gil Brand, the Dallas Cowboys. You got a great team coming back at uh, Oklahoma State. You won your bowl game. You got Thurman Thomas coming, you know, on and on. He said that there's nobody that you'd leave Oklahoma State at this late stage. I said, no, I'll, I'll come down to Miami Beach. I've never been to Coral Gables in my life. You know, I, only place I'd ever been to is Miami Beach. And so I accepted the job without ever even seeing, you know, Coral Gables. Jimmy, that, Jimmy that's crazy. That's like you would never hear that before. Yeah, but I wanted to live in South Florida. And so, you know, I, I, you know, they flew me in. I'd never, they said, the only thing is you have to retain all the assistant coaches. Uh, you know, I said, okay, I'll retain all the assistant coaches. So I come down in June and, and we're getting ready for the press conference. I, I landed, they took me off in the back way on the tarmac. We went to a, the holiday Inn there by the airport yep. and all the, all the coaches that I was going to retain were there. I've never met a single one of them. Well, little did I know three of them sitting in that room had lobbied to be the head coach. And they weren't real happy that I became the head coach. Oh, Lordy. And so I'm sitting there and it was dead silence. And, and I said, well, I'm Jimmy Johnson. What's your name? What do you coach? And I went around the room. Guys, you know, guys, I weren't even paying any attention to me. Tom Alvadotti was a defense coordinator and really a good, good football coach. I wish he had stayed. He had a set of keys. He would just drop them on the, you know, on the desk, you know, it was like, you know, he was going <laughs> the whole time I was talking and it got to him. And I said, uh, what's your name? He said, Tom Abadati, I'm defense coordinator. And I said, I'm thinking, well, he was one of the ones that wanted the job. And uh, I said, well, Tom, he said, listen, he said, I've seen your scheme of defense. We can't run that scheme of defense. I I'm not going to stay. Uh, I said, okay, uh, next. Uh, and then I said, you know, and then I went down and as they left the room, you know, you know, I shook each one of them's hand and said, hey, I hope you stay. I hope you stay. 
And then I went to the press conference. <laughs> I'm oh saying, what did I get into? Uh, you know, it was, uh, and then they all went on vacation, you know, and so I didn't see them again until training camp. It, it was the most bizarre thing you've ever seen. Uh, it be in all honesty, it was miserable for me. I was going to say you would never have taken another job and been told you got to keep all the coaches. No, but I wanted to live in South Florida. So where did that come from? Having you know, never been here before, what was the draw? Most college you know, teams are in small towns. Right. You know, I was in Fayetteville, Arkansas, you know, it's Stillwater, Oklahoma, Ames, Iowa, you know, all these different places. Uh, and I'd coach one year or a couple of years at uh, University of Pittsburgh in a city. And, and that, you know, that appealed to me. Now, I didn't like the cold weather, uh, but, you know, I'm saying, God, that would be great. You know, Miami, South Florida, warm weather, the water. I love the water because I grew up on the Gulf Coast there in Texas. And so it, it was appealing to me. And uh, it, in all honesty, Josh, is the best move I ever made. Even though it was miserable that first year, it was the best move I ever made. It was a great time, you know, there, uh, but it's been a great time ever since I left there. Oh, well, you made, you made a good life for yourself down there in the Keys. We'll, we'll talk about that uh, <laughs> in a little bit. But, I'll, you know, everyone knows the you now, right? You know, Howard put it on the map. You put it on the map. Dennis, Butch, Larry Coker, all the players, all the draft. But I, but I want to go back, what's that, 35 years, I guess, right? The Miami Hurricanes or the you were not that then. So I'm right. curious, as a guy who grew up in Texas and went to Arkansas and really didn't step foot on the East Coast, I know you wanted to be in South Florida, but what do people in the Midwest think of the Miami Hurricanes then if they thought anything? Well, I think it was, it was pretty well common knowledge that at one time University of Miami was going to drop football. And then all of a sudden it was a turnaround and then they had a great year and beat Nebraska and won the championship. And so it was, it was kind of a, the new team, the new hot spot. Uh, now let me just throw in, you know, as proud as I am of, you know, winning the championship and, and kind of getting the U on the right track. Uh, when I went there, the graduation rate for the football players was right at 50%. You know, we did a mandatory study hall. We added academic counselors. I had my coaches actually go to the classrooms to make sure our guys were going to class. We had most of our guys in summer school. The graduation rate when I left was 88% with all those things that we added. And I'm as proud of that as anything that I did at University of Miami because that graduation rate has stayed at a high level ever since I left because of some of the things that we installed while I was there. And the other thing, let me just tell you about the U. Yes, sir. Okay. Sam comes up to me, Sam Jankovich, and he said, you know, it'd be really cool. He said, if each sport, we had the U, and then each sport would have uh, a baseball player, you know, for the baseball team. And then the U would have a swimmer for, you know, in, in between, you know, for the swim you know, group or the volleyball or you know, whatever, and I have a football player right in the middle of the U. I said, Sam, I said, in my estimation, I said, we are going to be so good. We're not going to need a football player in the middle of the U. Let's just have the U, P 
people will recognize who we're, you know, who we're playing for. And so that's how the U itself came about. Well, it's uh, it is a brand into itself. You mentioned, you know, kind of miserable the first year. I, I the, you know, the first there was a lot of success. Obviously, obviously, you had tremendous success. I don't need to tell you that. But the you know the first three years, um, maybe I don't doubt's the right word, but you know, are, were you ever concerned that it may not work? I guess is what. As, I as far as getting over the hump, yeah. No, because we made such tremendous progress. Okay. Uh, you know, we, we were, you know, after Howard left, you know, we had to replace, like I think, like nine defensive starters, you know. And, and so we had to replace a lot of players. And and so we brought in a bunch of young guys. Now, some of those young guys struggled. You know, the Boston College guy game, you know, we had a couple of freshmen back in the secondary, you know. And, and so they struggled early. But they were young and they were getting better. And we knew that we were making progress. You know, the next year we start out strong. We lost the first game to Florida, but then we, we really made a, a great run. And then we lost to Tennessee. And still, it was a very young team. Uh, and then, of course, the next year we go out and, you know, so, I mean, as long as we were making progress with young players, we knew we were going to be pretty good. Let's also talk about your staff, right? Anyone that knows you, Miami, Dallas, uh, staff, the connection, the camaraderie, that, that bond. Obviously, you made changes, you said, after the first year defensively. But if I have this right, didn't you keep a lot of the offensive staff from Coach Nellenberg? You had Gary Stevens, Joe Brodsky, Hubbard Alexander. Though you kept them, did you not? Yeah, I, I kept them. And, and we made some adjustments. Um, we ended up, like I said, we installed our style of defense that second year. And, uh, you know, a lot of the staff is, you know, I brought my staff, you know, I, I brought in a couple of the guys the first year, the second year, uh, and then we, we really put it all together the second year. But the, the staff that I had at University of Miami, I actually took most of them to, to the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, and so, you know, that, that was important for me to have that bond. You know, I had my key guys, you know, the Dave Wonstens and the Butch Davis, and, you know, those guys. But you look at our staff, that, that first, uh, first couple of years, I think we had five of those guys became NFL head coaches. And I think we had nine total when you look at, you know, some of the uh, uh, some of the interns and the you know, the young guys that we, you know, Chuck Pagano's and Tommy Tupperbills and Bill Johnston. Uh, yeah, you know, they ended up you know having great careers as well, even though they weren't even on the regular staff. So we're going to get into some personnel and how you evaluate players. But what do you look for in a coach? You know, if you had so much success with your tree, what did you want in your coaches? same thing that I look for on anything. You know, I've had all kinds of people come down to general managers and owners, uh, come down to the keys and talk about evaluating talent. Uh, R.C. Buford, the San Antonio Spurs. What did he want to know? What did he want to know? He's a basketball guy. Evaluating talent. That's what he wanted to know about. I said, geez, you only have about three rounds in basketball. (laughs) (laughs) He said, still, he said, I'm I'm not only doing, he said, I want to evaluate, you know, whenever Popovich leaves, you know, what am I going to look for in a head coach? Uh, and actually, you know, Buford has been down here twice. He came down here uh, back about five years ago, and then he came down again uh, two years ago. Uh, in fact, I did a two-hour Zoom meeting uh, with the New York Knicks uh, just about uh, two weeks ago. 
uh, with all they, they need a lot of help, Jimmy. They, they need, need a lot, a lot of help. help. <laughs> <laughs> and Thibodeau's going to do a good job. Plus, they got my guy Worldwide West up there. <laughs> well, that's your guy, right? Worldwide West. <laughs> and, and he and Leon Rose. Yes. But, uh, uh, you know, so I talked to basketball, you know, baseball, but but all these people that come down, I said, listen, give me somebody that's smart. Give me somebody that's passionate. Give me somebody that's going to work hard. I don't care how much they know. They will learn what we want them to do. You know, they will, you know, we'll be able to teach them what we want them to do. You know, just give me somebody that's smart, that's hardworking, that's passionate about what we do. Yeah, I don't care how much they know. If they don't work hard, I don't want them. You know, but those three things are, are critical for me, for a coach, for a player, you know, whoever. You know, the other thing is I, I want somebody that's intelligent. Uh, you look at my first draft uh, with the Dallas Cowboys. I took four academic All-Americans. You know, Troy Aikman, you know, first round. Second round, Daryl Johnston. Third round, Mark Stabnoski. Fourth round, Tony Tolbert. Uh, and they all got better. Now, Daryl Johnston, you know, a lot of people said, God, he wasn't a flashy player, but he was dependable. He was a smart player, you know, and, and they get better. So, Number one, I want them to be intelligent. Number two, you know, I want them to be a playmaker. And people say, well, Michael Irving is a playmaker. I, no, no, no. It, you know, Russell Maryland was a playmaker. You know, uh, you look at, you know, the different players at different positions, it might be the key block, you know, that springs us for a touchdown. That's a playmaker. And, and I wanted somebody to be active. I, I wanted a defensive back that was able to intercept the football or, or strip the ball, making plays. Uh, the other thing is I want him to be a gym rat. You know, a gym rat, I want him to be passionate about the game. You know, I didn't want somebody that when it were practice over, he goes home. I wanted somebody who's going to spend a little bit of extra time. I wanted somebody that when he wasn't practicing football, you know, he was on the basketball court. He was competing or he was competing at whatever. He was a great competitor, passionate about the game, a gym rat. I wanted speed and quickness. And, you know, I, you know, you look at a Jason Taylor that I had with the Miami Dolphins, the people, you know, they shied away from him because he was 240 pounds. But not only was he a playmaker, he had great quickness and speed. He made plays. You know, the other thing is, you know, I want him, you know, I want him to have character. You know, you can't win championships with bums. You know, but, yeah, these are some of the things. Obviously, you look and you evaluate a player on film or in person. And you say, is he a player? I used to tell my scouts, I said, number one, you know what a football player is. So if you like him, he's right at the top. Then you start looking at the different other criteria. You know, how tall is he? How fast is he? Does he meet the dimensions, what you're looking for? You know, go through, you know, speed, quickness, character. Oh, no, no. I said, when you get through with all that, go back to the top. Is he a football player? That's how you make your decision whether or not you want him. But you know, once you know he's a football player, then you look at those other five intangibles that I talked about. That's going to tell me that he's going to get better and better and better, and he's going to fit into the team atmosphere. But that's what I'm looking for. Well, that's what you're looking for in a basketball player, a baseball player, in any sport. That's what you're looking for if somebody's going to work for your company. You know, if you're a CEO of a company, you want somebody that's smart, that works hard, and is passionate about their job. So it's all the same. So, you know, whenever I speak to companies and these little motivational speeches or whatever, whatever, 
hey, they relate, you know, their company and hiring people to me looking for talent. Was that philosophy developed at Miami, after Miami? And the only reason why I ask is how did you apply that to what you're recruiting high school kids? I think that that developed uh, when I was at University of Arkansas and I got my degree in psychology. <laughs> and just, you know, I love evaluating people. Uh, I love studying people that are successful. And I love studying people that are not successful. I mean, we all know some extremely talented individuals that never, ever panned out. Well, I'm going to avoid those. Why did they not pan out? Were they not smart enough? Did they not work hard? Were they not passionate about the job? You know, so I, I love studying those individuals that not only were successful, but studying individuals that had the talent, but never, ever made it. Howard kind of invented the phrase state of Miami when it came to recruiting. And, and in this day and age, people talk about how much talent there is in South Florida. Was that tangible to you when you came down here in 84, 85? Because I also know you recruited nationally. So how did you yeah. go about building your teams? Well, you know, we, you know, I, I wanted coaches, you know, to recruit where they felt comfortable. Um, and, and, you know, I had some great recruiters. I had some horrible recruiters. But, but every, everybody contributed in their way. Um, Butch Davis was an outstanding recruiter. Dave Wanstead was an outstanding recruiter. But I had to know him because with Butch, everybody was going to be a pro bowler or <laughs> all-American. You know? And, and, and uh, you know, Dave was pretty even keel. Tony Wise was the greatest offensive line coach that I've ever been around. Uh, but he was the worst recruiter I've ever been around. You know, Tony would go try and recruit somebody. I don't know that he's ever signed anybody. You know, I mean, in fact, he wanted to recruit up in the Northeast. Well, he'd bring all these players in from the Northeast, and, and we never got a one of them. And and so I said, uh, I said, Tony, I said, I'm going to change your recruiting area. And he said, well, okay, well, where are you going to put me? And I said, I'm going to put you down in the Keys. <laughs> in fact, not even Key Largo. I'm talking about South Key. Let's get out of here. He said, there's no players down there. I said, oh, you won't spend a lot of money. You can drive down there and look around. <laughs> that way you're recruiting, but whatever. But with Tony, he might be recruiting an offensive lineman. The offensive lineman said, coach, you know, you, can I play as a freshman? And Tony would look at him and say, play as a freshman? Do you realize how good we are? You probably won't play till your junior or senior year at the most. You know, well, obviously we wouldn't get that player. You know, <laughs> you know. Whereas Butch, Butch said, "Hey, you're going to be a starter day one." I said, "Oh, Butch, don't tell him that." <laughs> yeah, and so I knew my coaches. I knew which ones could recruit, which ones you know contributed in other ways. I knew how to evaluate their what they were telling me about how good this player was and how he was going to contribute. So there was a lot that went into it as far as the recruiting. Were you a stars guy that even have stars back there? I imagine you didn't care about that. I, I, I didn't care anything about stars. You think uh, Jimmy Jones had stars, you know, Jimmy Jones didn't play football his senior year in high school. You know, Butch Davis brought this tape back a, a film back then. He, he brought it back and he says, uh, we got this guy that played as a junior. He didn't play his senior year because him and the head coach got into it. Uh, why don't you look at this and see if you want to put him in junior college? So I watched Jimmy Jones play as a junior. I said, how tall is he? He said, oh, he's uh, six, three and a half, six, four. 
how much he weighed? You know, at 245. I said, the heck with junior college, bring him here. I want to meet him. We'll sign him. Well, obviously, he didn't have a star. Right. Uh, Chudzinski, uh, I don't think he had any scholarship offers. If he did, it was Villanova. I think it was, might have been the only one. He didn't have any stars. Russell Maryland, he had, I think he had one scholarship offer at Indiana State. Uh, he didn't have any stars. Um, you, you look at Steve Walsh, uh, I, he might have had an offer somewhere, and he didn't have any stars. So I didn't look at the stars. I looked at potential and whether or not they were going to be good players for University of Miami. Now, we did get some stars. Like I was recruiting uh, one of the one of the recruits I uh, probably worked harder on than any other is a linebacker uh, in Dallas. And so I, I was going there and I went into Sunset High School and this player came over and said, Coach, where have you been? And it was Kevin Williams. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, I've been telling everybody I'm going to go to University of Miami. You know, I'd never met Kevin Williams, you know, but he was a parade All-American. He wanted to go to the University of Miami. Uh, so, yeah, we uh, we got some that were highly touted players, but uh, a lot of the guys were not stars. You mentioned before about your kind of five tenets of a player, and you said character, right? Character was important. And I think everyone would obviously sign off on that. I think from the outside looking in at those teams, people would look at your teams and the dancing and the celebrating and the brash personalities. And they would say, Oh, those, that's not character, but that's a complete misnomer. Right. I mean, you know, Josh, I, I, I told our guys, I said, Hey, enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself. Hey, if, if you want to, you know, jump up and down and dance and everything, as long as you don't, you know, do it in a negative way, a negative way to the opponent. And as long as you don't get a penalty, you know, because you look at our teams, our teams had very few penalties. You know, our, our teams you know, really were not a highly penalized team because I wouldn't accept that. I wouldn't take it. And I didn't want them to throw it into the opponent's face. But I didn't mind them celebrating. I didn't mind them having a good time. People, you know, people misunderstand, you know, as far as what we said, swagger. Swagger to me was confidence. Swagger was, you know, being confident about what you were going to do. Swagger is not a negative thing toward the opponent. Swagger is not getting unnecessary penalties. Uh, you know, you didn't see a bunch of 15-yard penalties on our team at all. So can you just give me an example of if someone did uh, cost the team a penalty, what that punishment would have looked like 35 years ago? Well, I'd have taken them off the field for one thing. And, they, you know, we didn't get them for the simple reason I, I, I governed this in practice. Like I wouldn't let our guys fight, you know, they fight in practice, you know, you know and, and, and invariably this happens on occasion. Okay. I'd break them out and I would just let them have it. Say, Hey, you know, we're not here to fight. We're here to play football. You know, maybe we'd have an unnecessary roughness in practice. I would, I would nip it in the bud right there in practice or they'd be jawing back and forth. I don't want us jawing back and forth in practice. And so I, I pretty well, monitored this in practice to where it never really happened much in games. Now, you, let me just say this. Yes, sir. Uh, I, I, I remember I'd left University of Miami and I was watching Miami play University of Texas. Uh -oh. <laughs> in uh -oh. Uh -oh. And I saw some penalty. I said, geez, I would have never accepted that at all. But hey, it is what it is. 
you embrace the big personality. You know, Michael Irvin, Jerome Brown, Melvin Bratt, and Alonzo Highsmith. I'm sure there, I'm sure there. Are, I mean, there are plenty of others. Why were you comfortable with that? Well, you know, sometimes those big personalities, uh, they have such confidence that, that it kind of carries over to the other players. I like the big personalities. Uh, the big personalities sometimes, you know, they have that so-called what we call swagger, uh, and it actually motivates them, you know, to do even better. Uh, it, it really puts the pressure on them. Uh, it's the Pygmalion effect, the self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, like, you know, a lot of coaches, you know, you say, oh, boy, I don't know if we can win that game. They have such a great team. You know, oh, I don't know. Well, I didn't want to put that seed in our players' mind. You know, I looked at them and said, I know, and we'd go in a meeting. I said, hey, guys, we're going to kick their ass. <laughs> we're, we're better than they are. You know, and so I wanted to put the Pygmalion effect on our players, you know, to, to where – you know, they expected to win. Uh, and actually, it put the pressure on them to win. Uh, I mean, even in a game where it was going to be close, you know, you never, ever heard words out of my mouth that we'll have a tough time with this bunch because they're better than we are. And as much as those guys were personalities, you look at a guy like Michael Irvin. I've known Michael a long time. And, yeah, there's the sort of the external persona. But the thing I know about Mike is – and I want you to elaborate, or it could be any of the other, these guys is their work ethic, right? Mike was a worker. Remember the, the five things that I, I talked yes, about, you know, I, I want him to be passionate. I, you know, Jack. I want him to be a gym rat. Well, hey, yeah, Michael is a gym rat, you know? <laughs> and so yeah, I, we expected our guys to work hard because I worked hard. You know, uh, my coaches worked hard. You know, we set the example for them. Hey, here's what you can expect from us. We're going to work and we're going to put you in the best position that we can put you in to be successful. How fun was coaching Jerome Brown? Jerome was a piece of work now. He, he, Maybe it wasn't fun. I don't know. You know no, he, he, he was fun. He, he was, uh, I had to adjust to him. He had to adjust to me. Uh, I had expectations for Jerome. Uh, I remember, you know, one time I, we went out to in a ball game and, He's sitting there stretching. He's got a boom box, you know, playing music. I said, what in the world is this? Hey, we're getting ready to play a ball game. Oh, yeah. So he, I had to adjust as far as his, his deal. I remember we played University of Oklahoma. And, you know, at Oklahoma State, I struggled against Oklahoma. And so my first year going to Norman, Oklahoma, to play them with the Miami team, Jerome's out there stretching, and the Oklahoma players started – walking down the ramp, going into the stadium. And Jerome looks over at them and where they could hear, and he said, fresh meat, fresh meat. Come on down, boys, fresh meat. I'm saying, Jerome, hey, don't, let's not upset these guys. They're pretty good. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. God, so, so many players, so many names. Uh, did you have a I'm – not, I'm not asking you to pick favorites, but, like, we know the big names, right? The big names, we've mentioned them. But was there a guy on those teams that wasn't, didn't have that kind of following or name that you just love coaching? Oh, gosh, there are just so many. I mean, I, I, I would hate to even say one or two. Okay. I mean, I mean we had such a great group, um, all successful. Uh, I mean, you look at them, you know, guys that got their diplomas, um, guys that are successful today, 
uh, and, and, you know, it showed back then. You, you knew they were going to be successful. The word you family is thrown around a lot. And you've talked about the university being a family. But when you, you, you watch, you know, Don Solinger talk or Randy Shannon or Darren Smith or Butch Davis, they, they talk so much about the success and the coaching and the championships and whatever. But how important it was for you to create a family environment and show your players how much you cared about them. Why was that so important to you? Well, I, I think every, every one of them knew I had their back. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, there's times when college kids and their kids, college kids are, are going to step out of bounds. But they always knew I was 100% with them. I had their back. I was going to fight for them. Um, hey, they might be disciplined, uh, but uh, I was going to be with them. And, and, uh, and I think they appreciated that. And uh, it just, we were all in it together. I mean, and it wasn't a us against the world type of thing, but it, but it was, uh, we're all in this together. You know, you can count on, you can count on me. I can count on you. Uh, and nobody's going to break that bond. Benny Blade said, you know, for a young black male, you know, that you, you, the impact you had on him, it changed his life. Were you aware at the time that you were changing lives? You know, when I was growing up, you know, eight or nine years old, uh, we used to play tackle football uh, with kids in the neighborhood, um, black kids, you know, white kids, uh, you know, Hispanics, you know, you know, you know, you know that was back in Port Arthur, and that was like weekly. I mean, and it wasn't flag, and it wasn't touch. It was, <laughs> it was tackle football with no pads. Uh, but that's how I grew up. Uh, and I remember I, I was in Stillwater, and they did a, a TV piece on me. And uh, they went back to Port Arthur and interviewed, you know, some of those uh, black individuals that were my friends uh, growing up. And they said, you know, Jimmy was one of the greatest guys on and on and on saying all these accolades. But, you know, so that's my background. And, uh, and, and I think that, that carried over to some of our players. Uh, and again, I, did, I didn't care, you know, what a player's background was. Hey, he might have come from a real rich white family. I, everybody was the same. You know, you lay it on the line, you perform. You do what I ask you to do. Everybody's on a scale. You know, I always told our players, I said, listen, I'm going to be very consistent. I'm going to treat every single one of you differently. And here's how I treat you. I said, you know, everybody here's on scale. The more you do what we ask you to do, the more you meet the rules and regulations, you know, the more you, you do, do what the, the university asks you to do, and don't forget this, the better performer you are, the higher you are up on the scale. And I'm going to cut you some slack. You don't do what we ask you to do. You don't do what the university asks you to do. You don't meet the rules and regulations. And you're not a good player. You're at the bottom of the scale. <laughs> Pretty easy. So, so you've got no margin of error. You know, you know, if you mess up, you're not going to be around here. And so everybody understood where I was coming from. And so it, it had nothing to do with the color of their skin. It had nothing to do about where they came from. It had nothing to do whether or not they were highly recruited or a walk-on. 
everybody was treated according to that scale. So they knew if they worked hard and they met the rules and regulations, you know, and they were a good player, I was going to have their back. You know, but if they didn't do what we asked them to do and they weren't a good player and they didn't meet the rules and regulations, they weren't going to be around very long. You just talked about growing up in Port Arthur, Texas. You went to the University of Arkansas. How does a man from that part of the country settle in the Keys? <laughs> well, growing up in Port Arthur, I was right there on the Gulf Coast. And we, you know, our family vacations would be to drive to the beach and pull a 200, 300-foot seine, you know, and, you know, get fish and stuff like that. And so... Uh, that was always, even, you know, in high school, you know, like our getaway was to get in the car and go to Galveston and go to the beach. So, uh, you know, I enjoyed that. My mother and daddy, we had a little old wooden boat, probably about 15 foot long, and we'd go water skiing, you know, and so we'd have a camp out overnight. So it's always been about the water and, and warm weather. Uh, and so that, that, Port Arthur was, you know, being on the water, being on the Gulf Coast. And, and when I was at the Dallas Cowboys, even though we won a couple of Super Bowls, I knew I wanted to live in South Florida. And so even before my second Super Bowl, I bought a place in the Keys, and I knew that's where I was going to eventually go. Who introduced you to the Keys? Like, did you just go down? I, I got, when I was at University of Miami, I got certified scuba diving in the Keys. Uh, so that was my first experience. And then when I, um, you know, when I was going to leave, I knew I was going to leave Dallas and I was going to buy a place in South Florida. I looked around in Miami and Miami Beach and, you know, the prices were so expensive. And then I drove down to Keys and I, I went to Ocean Reef. I looked there and I didn't like that. You know, and then I drove down the Keys and I said, God, this is the atmosphere I like. This is what I want. And so we bought a, a little place on the bay on a canal and then we eventually moved over to the ocean. But, uh, you know, so it was my exposure to the Keys when I was at University of Miami. And now you got a restaurant down there, the Big Chill. What, what got you into that? And I got the Big Chill. Well, actually, I, I had a couple of restaurants when, uh, uh, when I was with the Dolphins. I had uh, three rings uh, there at the Eden Rock. And then I had one in Oklahoma City. Uh, and then I got connected with the Big Chill. And so it just made sense to... I have a restaurant here in the Keys. So when all these coaches come down, you've talked about it, but personnel people, you kind of told me what they want to know. Uh, how, how does someone arrange that with you? You have like some, you have like a personal assistant that's, that schedules oh, your time. How does one get time with Jimmy Johnson in the Keys? They usually track me down. They might go with my, my, my two best friends, Nick Kristen and, and uh, my attorney and, and oh, Terry Bradshaw. But they'll get a hold of Nick and, and go through one thing or another. If they're friends like Belichick, you know, he comes down uh, quite often, and so he stays over in the guest house. If it's somebody I doesn't, if I if I don't know him real well, <laughs> I tell him I'll meet him at the Big Chill, and so I'll spend a couple hours there. Because if they get in that guest house, they may not leave. <laughs> if they're close friends, they stay in the guest house. So what, when you met with Manny, uh, what did he want to know? Oh, Manny was great. I, I tell you, I'm so impressed with Manny. He's so organized. Uh, I, I think he's got a great future there. You know, of course, already, you know, as an assistant, he did a great job. And, of course, I think he's on track to do it right now again. Uh, he wanted to know everything. In fact, it was funny. He had his staff down here a couple of years ago when he, 
when he first became head coach. And he had his phone out. And I was talking, going 90 miles an hour. And he, he said, Coach, he said, listen, I'm not texting anybody. I'm just kind of putting down some notes so I'll remember them. <laughs> now, Manny's great. So let me ask you that, I, you know, I, I, I did want to ask you this earlier. It just came up. So Manny, defensive mind, et cetera, obviously made the change with the offensive coordinator running a different offense. I actually wanted to ask you, how would you stop the RPO back in the day? They didn't run RPO back in the day. They didn't run that up-tempo stuff. I know they had wishbone and stuff. How would you defend RPO, these, these 2020 offenses? How would Jimmy Johnson attack that? Belichick and I have talked about this, and, and I think he's got a pretty good plan. You play man coverage against it, for one thing. If you're good enough to play man, uh, you play man coverage, that takes away a lot of the options. So I'm going to end with a couple quick hitters, okay, and then we're going to let you go. Okay. Which loss stings more, the 86 Fiesta Bowl or 88 Notre Dame? Oh, without question, the Fiesta Bowl. Um, both of them, because in reality, we didn't lose the Notre Dame game. It's just the officials uh, didn't uh, rule the right way. Good answer. What ring do you wear more, the 87 championship or, or any of the two Super Bowl rings, if any, if any of the I, three? I, the only time I wear rings is if I've got a speaking engagement or I've been a, I'm in a public function. <laughs> Which one do you break out? Which one do you break out or does it depend I, on the venue? I, it, it just depends. If I'm talking to the Miami crowd, it's University of Miami National Championship. And I adjusted that ring. I, I bought a, uh, a marquee solid, solitaire diamond, a big diamond, and put in that one. Because, you know, in college, you can't afford to put those big diamonds in there. <laughs> <laughs> if it's a pro crowd, I usually have my second Super Bowl ring. It's the biggest. All right. So if I go, if I venture down to the Big Chill, what, what percentage chance do I have of seeing you there having a, having a beer? Uh, you, you know, occasionally I go there for lunch. And uh, I very rarely go there at night. Uh, okay. At, at night, I know now at, it's different. At night, people well, before right uh, COVID nineteen, but at night people lose their inhibitions, and so it's get a out of there. For me to move around in there at night, but uh, but I go there for lunch, you know, quite a bit, you know, when everything's normal. Last two, how happy will Jimmy Johnson be if Miami wins a sixth ring in his in your lifetime? Oh, I, I would be ecstatic. Uh, you don't know how much I. I live and die with, with every single play and, and every single game at University of Miami. I, I, I don't miss a play. And uh, I'd, I'd love to see him win another ring. And last thing, when you finally won the 87 championship, you're being taken and carried off the field. Describe that moment. I think because of the disappointment of the year before of, of losing the one game, uh, it was almost redemption. It, it was almost relief. Uh, I mean, it was, uh, it's hard to describe just how great we felt because we accomplished it. You know, we accomplished our goal. We were the best. And uh, I mean, that's a nice feeling to know that you're the best. Well, Jimmy, you are the best and you've been a great storyteller. Thank you for being on here and taking us behind the U. Uh, this was awesome, uh, a pleasure, and, uh, and we are eternally grateful for your time. All right, thank you. I enjoyed it. <laughs>